welcome to Ana Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features Rone Sanluin, a prominent Rohingya activist from Myanmar. Since his departure from Myanmar 18 years ago, he has been documenting human rights violations in his home country and bringing international awareness to the plight of the Rohingya. He is a passionate campaigner for human rights who, despite threats to his life and public attacks from both the Myanmar Presidential Office and the State Councillor's Office, refuses to be silenced. Since the coup in February 2021, he has continued to campaign and draw awareness to the ongoing situation in Myanmar. A long-term activist for the Rohingya struggle, he views his prime role as a passionate campaigner providing an up-to-date fact-checking service, including situation updates and analysis. He also advises and provides information to various governments, human rights organisations, United Nations staff, journalists and others in order to assist their efforts in bringing focus to the Rohingya and the Myanmar military's genocidal strategies. Here he talks about the frustrations concerning the continued lack of action from the international community, the ongoing plight of the displaced Rohingya who are virtually imprisoned in refugee camps with no hope of a life beyond, and how now, more than ever, is the time for people all across Myanmar to unite to finally put an end to the military's mass slaughtering of its people. Let's start the conversation. Nathan Nguyen, thank you for coming and talking to us on, on our podcast. And I know that a lot of people will know who you are. You're a very well-known activist, but it would be great if maybe you could just give us a brief introduction. I know people find it hard to give a brief account of who they are and what they do, but uh, if you could just give us a brief overview for any listeners who maybe don't know who you are. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me here today in this program. I am Nathan Nguyen, a Rohingya activist. I myself is a Rohingya. I was born in Budirong Township, Northern Arkan State, now you know as a Rakhine State. And I moved to the former capital, Rango, when I was at six years old, that is in 1984, when my parents transferred their government job to Rango because they were under threat by the local authority there since they are supporting the Rohingya struggle while they are serving the government. So. Basically, I was raised in Rangoon. I studied there. I completed my uh, university study there. And this is since the first day of my school life in Rangoon, I experienced the serious discrimination. Although I have the name Nissan Luen, most of my classmates, they call me Kalai. That is what I faced in Rangoon. So since I was young, I thought that, you know, one day I will leave from this country. I cannot really bear this discrimination at all. So in 2001, I left from the country. Before I left from the country, I learned about the persecution against the Rohingya back in Rakhine State. So after I left from the country, I decided to campaign for my people. So... This way I became an activist and also my parents encouraged me to be an activist. So as of now, I am in Germany, living here for 10 years now. And before that, I work in Middle East and I had to came here in the South Asylum as the Burmese embassy in Riyadh refused to renew my passport. This way I became stateless without passport. That led me to migrate to Germany. When you talk about leaving, 
What is the most common ways that a Rohingya can leave Myanmar? Because I believe things like documents and passports are are not possible. So how how do people leave? Well, you know, unlike most of my fellow Rohingya, my parents were serving the government and my grandfathers who were in Budilong, they were the, the most prominent officer there. They support the police department and also the Ministry of Corporate. And my great-grandfather, his name is the Abdul Jalil, in 1949, when he applied the citizenship and asked, you know, the Minister of Justice whether he need to apply the citizenship. He got the response letter from the Minister of Justice that, you know, he belonged to the one of the indigenous ethnic group of Burma. That is why he doesn't need to apply the citizenship. So basically, we had all the documents and that enabled me to apply the passport. So my father, he left from his government job in 1990s and he left from the country and he was working. So I joined. So for the other Rohingya, most of the Rohingya, until the 1992, they can travel to Rangoon. If they wanted to apply their passport, they can have it. But, you know, after 1992, this uh, Lieutenant General King Yo, who was the secretary one of this military regime, he imposed the several restrictions like freedom of movement and other, all of you know, that, you know, the bad restriction. So after that, nobody can travel to Rangoon anymore. And like, you know, my relative, close relative back in Budirong, they used to travel to Rangoon every year. And we had the very great moment with them. But since 1992, they could not travel anymore. So this is the thing, you know. So we we were once recognized as the full citizen when this national registration card issued in Burma for the first time in the early of 1950s. They had the pilot program in two places. One is in Mongdo, in northern Arkansas state, and another is in Rangon, Thailand Township. So we are the people, first batch, we got this national registration card, which is equivalent to the full citizenship. But after, you know, they entered the new citizenship law in 1982, they stopped issuing the national registration card. And 1989, they all were asked to apply the new, you know, the pink color citizenship card. So most of the Rohingya, they applied for the this citizenship, new citizenship card. And, you know, they had to give their national registration card when they apply for the this card, the new card. So in return, five years later in return, they have got the temporary registration card. That means, you know, they have downgraded the citizenship status of the Rohingya. So with this temporary card, they cannot travel anywhere. This way, you know, most of the people, they don't know the background history of the Rohingya. So most of the people thought we are trying to get the citizenship in Myanmar. But in reality, uh, we had the full citizenship. The term Rohingya was fully recognized. And, you know, it was officially recognized by the democratic government until 1962. Even, you know, after the 1962, until 1965, there was the official radio program broadcasted by the state radio. And also the first massive, uh, you know, the violence against the Rohingya in 1978, 
in this violence resulted, you know, about 280,000 Rohingya fled to Bangladesh. When they were repatriated to Burma a few months later at the reception center, when the Ministry of Home Affairs issued them the, the form that, you know, they are repatriated in the form, the race, the ethnic group was mentioned as Rohingya. But, you know, since they have the long-term plan to uh, wipe up this entire population from the Rohingya, you know, in 1982, they entered the new citizenship law. Then, you know, slowly, even in the household registration list, they start, you know, the changing the ethnic group name from Rohingya to Bengali. I think, Nisanwin, for many people, especially in the West, or, or even within Myanmar, like, Rohingya has obviously dominated the news since the 2017 genocide. And sometimes I feel that the word genocide doesn't have the impact it should have on people when they hear it. You know, I think I think it's a word people just hear and they don't actually take in what, what we mean when we say a genocide. Can, can you tell us a little bit about the events leading up to 2017 and what you mean when you say there was a genocide? Well, you know, genocide has the legal definition. so. With this all definition and our suffering are matching. So this is not what I can decide as an activist. There are the genocide scholar and, you know, there are the expert and there are the, you know, the uh, lawyers. They decide that the time. So, you know, from our side, since the 1974, the Rohingya group keeps saying that, you know, the military regime is committing the genocide against us. But nobody listened to us. And until 2017, nobody listened to us. You know, they thought, you know, this is just like a persecution and they have kept using the term ethnic cleansing, which has no legal definition. And the problem is nobody can assess the ground situation. So as I mentioned you earlier, since 1992, nobody can travel to Rangoon or the other state from Rakhine state. So the telecommunication also very poor. When uh, my close relative call us, you know, they don't mention about this uh, persecution at all because all calls are recorded and they need to call from the telephone chain. You know, there are the several people always waiting from the intelligence department. So how I learned about this persecution is I went to Saudi Arabia in 1997 and stayed there for a year, you know. So I started hearing about the dispersecution. So my father was also working there. So my father told me that, you know, this military regime is committing the genocide against us. But that time I didn't understand, you know, what the genocide is. So later, slowly, and, you know, when I became the activist, you know, slowly I study about all this, you know, the, how the genocide happened. So what exactly happened to the Rohingya and the genocide definition are, you know, the same. So I accept this as the genocide, but the people of Myanmar, since we were isolated and nobody has information that, you know, these people are existing in Myanmar. So in 2012, when the Pwasi civilian government led by the thing say, launched the state-sponsored violence, most of the people call this the sectarian violence, communal violence, but it was the state-sponsored violence against the Rohingya. It was one-sided violence, you know, more than 1,000 people were killed and 10,000 people displaced until they are in the concentration camp. I use the concentration camp because 
I have visited all concentration camp uh, memorial sites in Dachau, Sachsenhausen, even in Auschwitz. So the camp are same like this, you know, the, the concentration camp. There is no forced labor and the no dead camp. But still, you know, the people are sometimes, they have to go for the forced labor, you know, but it is not the life scale and they cannot go out from the camp. They are just waiting for their final day. They have no any hope to leave from this camp. So at the time also, you know, when the Rohingya said this regime is committing the genocide against us, nobody believed, you know. You know that Dr. Bongzani, he co-authored a research paper, 73 page, titled The Slow Burning Genocide of Rohingya. So at the time, nobody buy it. But still, you know, when the legal scholar and the genocide scholar, you know, they accepted the term genocide. Still, you know, the, the UN is not ready to call it. And also, they like, you know, that there are the many superpower countries. They still not recognizing yet. This is only by the a few countries and the tiny country, Africa, you know, filed the case against Myanmar at the International Court of Justice. Nay Sanwin, what do you think when the 2017 atrocities happened, what do you think was the difference for the international community this time? Was it access to information? Was it more people taking notice? Why do you think it became so, you know, widely reported on um, in 2017? Well, you know, the difference between the 2012 and the 2017 is the communication. That is very important. In 2012, you know, we didn't have the mobile phone. We didn't have the internet. But, you know, this internet, a few people in Myanmar, they have started using it. And only the government and those people in diaspora and, you know, the handful of people in the largest city like Rangoon and Mandalay. And also, of course, you know, the people in Sitwe, they have been using it. So... In 2012, you know, when the regime launched the state-sponsored violence, you know, the, the government spokesperson spread the word that the Rohingya are invading. He didn't use the term Rohingya, but he used the term Bengali, which is very often for us. And he said, you know, that these people are invading. So the people across the country, since they didn't have any knowledge about these people existing, they really thought, you know, these are the Bengali illegal immigrants from Bangladesh and they are intruding the country. You live in Myanmar, you know that how the restrictions are there, especially, you know, when you try to assess the ethnic area. So at the time, nobody can travel to Rakhine State, only a handful of people working at the NGO. They also need the special permission from the state government to assess the area. So the information is very limited. And this time in 2017, all the people had the mobile phone with internet. So they could record most of the atrocity committed by this military. Of course, you know, when the military killed the people, you know, they could not. And also when the military touched the houses, they could not. The same thing is, you know, now since after the military coup, we know that the, the military is uh, setting the houses on fire. Military is killing the people, but nobody can claim them. So the same situation like us, you know, but we know that they are committing and they are touching the houses after the, you know, they set fire the houses, then we can flee. So the most important is the communication and also the media coverage. 
you know, the mainstream media, especially the wire agency like the Writer, Associated Press, and the AFP, they play a key role and they cover all the information they got from the ground. And they were connected with the people in the ground. You know, this way, you know, the wall got all the information from the ground. When you talk about like burning houses, killing people, like we're seeing all of that today, you know, uh, again. And I, I'm just thinking for you as someone who's been so prominent as an activist, you would expect that the reception you would receive would be a positive one. But that hasn't been the case. I mean, you've suffered a lot of death threats. You've had a lot of a lot of threats against your life for your activism. Tell us a little bit about that and, and like the kind of people who attack you like that and why they do that. Well, you know, this is not just, you know, happening for the past decade, you know. Since 1962, when the military came into the power and, you know, they had the plan to create all this conflict for their political gain, to see the military as a, you know, institution protecting the Buddhist people, you know, they have created this sense for all the Buddhists. And, you know, they have been spreading across the country that one day this country will become like, you know, the Afghanistan or Indonesia or Malaysia, you know, those countries were the Buddhist country. So this propaganda, not just, you know, the Wiratu started in 2013. I have read a lot of books you know, published by the military in the past, you know, when I was young, you know, the military as the psychological warfare department. So across the country, most of the people are brainwashed. And, you know, I myself, you know, only I had a channel when I was young, you know, that is MRTV. We watch all daily news. We don't have any access to any other, you know, foreign channel. So they always think the government is always right. And, you know, this ethnic minority are wrong. When I was young, I thought, you know, that the current National Union, KNU, they are the rebel group. They are very cruel. And, you know, they are the group destroying the railways, destroying the bridge. They plant the mine everywhere. You know, they are against the public. So, you know, we were brainwashed. So after I left from the country, I learned all the truth because, you know, we have no access. So since these people, you know, the Buddhists, they really thought, you know, this Muslim are invader and they have the hatred against the Muslim in their heart. So whenever, you know, even in 2017 and 2016, 2012, when we suffer by the violence, you know, they didn't believe. They thought, you know, these people are, you know, just pretending and, you know, they want the help from the OIC. They want the help from the UN, you know, the propaganda in the country also, uh, you know, they are just burning their own houses to get the support from the OIC and the UN. UN will build them, you know, very good houses. So they really believe that, you know, even the educated people. You know, and the problem is the religion, the military regime always play with the religion card. So that was the main problem. And now finally, you know, after the coup, when they suffer the same way military treated us, then they realize, you know, this military is the common enemy. And, you know, they access to the information in 2017, but they don't convince by themselves to believe. So I was one of the, you know, person among the other Rohingya activists, always, you know, 
I don't write much in English. I write much in Burmese because just to educate the Burmese people. So they were following the story, but they didn't convince themselves to believe that. Even the journalists, you know, those are working for the foreign media and like, you know, they're working for the Burmese section, like, you know, the, the BBC, RFA and the Voice of America. They didn't believe, you know, they attacked me. And I received like that threat all the time, you know, whenever I open the Facebook Messenger spam section, you know, there are a lot of spam message, you know, threatening me. You will come back to Rangoon, you will be the second Ukoni, you know, we will kill you at the airport. This is the same message. Another one, you know, the most prominent one is the grandson of the late dictator Une Wing. He threatened me and my colleague and brother, Dr. Mongzani. So said, you know, we should be kidnapped, abducted from here to Myanmar and try there like the SS officer, you know, the Israel, you know, the kidnapped from the Argentina. But now those people, I'm not saying that grandson anyway, but, you know, there are a lot of people who threaten me and, you know, who always abuse me over the social media. Some of the people send me the message and, you know, they admitted that. They were at the wrong side, you know, they apologized me. Even, you know, many other people, you know, in public, they apologize. So things are changing. We have to wait and see till the end because, you know, this religion issue is very sensitive in Myanmar. You know? So the people should learn from this path and they have to try not to repeat again. One of the things just when you're saying that, and I actually I was going to ask you, but you mentioned it was about the Ene Win because, yeah, he videoed himself actually putting out a threat to your life and to Mongzarni as well. I'm just interested in you in terms of how I've spoken to different people, different ethnic groups and people who've suffered. And I've spoken to other people from the Rohingya community. And I feel like for some people, there is a kind of, well, when they're looking at what's happening now, uh, since the spring revolution, there's kind of a, well, that's what you get. You know, that's your own fault. You didn't care when it was happening to me, so I don't care when it's happening to you. You don't seem to fall into that category. You seem to care just as much now as you did before. Uh, and if anything, you seem to be advocating for these people just as much as as you always have been. So talk to me a little bit about why you stand in support with all the people in Myanmar and you haven't just decided to say, well, sorry, guys, you know, when we were suffering, you didn't care. So I'm not going to care that you're suffering. Well, you know, this is, you know, surprised by the many, my fellow Burmese. They thought, you know, I will keep silent and enjoy, you know, the same way they did to us. But I always try to be a human. I suffer a lot when I was young by the discrimination and for me, the humanity is the basic principle. You know. So I will stand with any oppressed, you know, regardless of whether, you know, they stand for us or not, you know, I will not care. And even, you know, they treated me very badly in the past. I don't forget them, but, you know, I forgive them even if they didn't apologize me. I, I would forgive them because, you know, they are also a kind of victim. You know, they are not the perpetrator. They fall in the trap made by this military regime. The military regime and the politician, you know, I would also count them, you know, the politician. They are the main perpetrator. And these people suffering, you know, just in front of my eyes. You know, I have no heart to tolerate and, you know, keep silence. You know. I can raise my voice, you know. Of course, you know, if I was not a well-known person, you know, it is okay. But I have, 
I have something, some resource, you know, that I can make awareness of their suffering. I can do something for them, you know. So I feel that I should not keep silence. And at the end of the day, you know, we have to live together peacefully in the same country. We have no option to, you know, the separate the Rohingya region from the, this country. We never thought about that as well. And, you know, whatever happened in the past, maybe in the future also can happen. But, you know, at the end of the day, we are the people from the same region. And, you know, the perpetrator also the same. And according to my principle as well, you know, I cannot keep silent. So I give them my hand. And, you know, before I raised my voice, when I had the interview with the Time magazine, I told this publicly that we will try to establish a solidarity movement. This is a good opportunity for us to be together again. So I have no intention to gain from this, you know, the movement, but I raised my voice as my basic principle of the humanity, not because of any gain. So in case, you know, in the future, they turn back again and they suffer again, I will still raise the voice for them because, you know, I think as an activist or as a human being, we should raise our voice for any oppressed community across the world. Then at least whether the problem solved or not, at least, you know, the oppressed, they are really happy. I'm a member of the oppressed community. We are really happy, you know, if anyone outside from the, our community raised the voice for us, we really appreciate and we're really happy. They always, you know, after I raised the voice, I have got a lot of friends. And they approach me always, you know, please tweet this for us. Please raise this issue. So I have got a good network across the country. And at least we are together now. I'm not saying all the people, but still, you know, with those campaigners, I am involving in now Black Money campaign and many other campaigns, you know, with them. So if some of the people can learn from my stand, that would be really helpful for the people across Myanmar. Yeah, because I worry sometimes, and I, I think it's great that you have that forgiveness and that want to help other people, because I worry about the activists who carry that anger, because I don't know where that will leave the future of anybody if we're not able to forgive. And I know that's very easy to say when I haven't suffered in the way they have, but I've always admired that in you and Mong Zarni as well, just in how you're still fighting for everybody, even though those people have not been good to you. You know, I think it's it's really admirable. But in terms of what we're seeing at the moment, and we had mentioned just before we came on about what happened at Christmas in Myanmar, and we saw those people burned, those bodies. This is sadly not new for you, having obviously been closely following what has happened to the Rohingya over all of these years. Do you see this, what's happening now as a shift? Is there a change in people realizing, oh my goodness, this is what happened to the Rohingya. This is what people have been trying to tell us all along. And now we're seeing it here again with our own eyes. Do you think that there's a, a shift happening in terms of people's understanding of what happened to the Rohingya? Yes, uh, exactly. You know, this happened in Meitila in central Myanmar in 2013. Tell you know, there are some videos uh, you can find over the social media. And this happened to Rohingya in 2016. At least 150 Rohingya were, you know, they burned alive and, you know, they cleaned the ashes from the village. So this happened to at least thousands of people, thousands of Rohingya in 2017 as well. 
Now when they see all these video and the images over the social media from the news media, they realize that those you know happened to the Rohingya were true. And for the Maitila, they could not deny because there is the video. So for us, you know, we didn't have any footage, but still, you know, that the footage like that in 2017 we got. And 2016 also we got, you know, but since there is the propaganda from the government, at the time, yes, yeah, the city led government, they have got the Facebook page called the State Consular Information Committee. They're always propagating there that those were done by the Arkan Rohingya Salvation Army, that the rebel group has done this. So they really believe that, you know, it was done by the rebel group and then not by the government and the military. Now they believe that, you know, it was done by the same military, the same perpetrator. Because, you know, not just, you know, the burning life happened on the Christmas day in this month. You know, it happened in at least two, three area in the Sagain region as well. So they saw how an up civilian and also the PDF member were burned alive. So this is the shift in their view. And they really hate the military. Now the hate also shifts from the Rohingya to military. I remember recently just watching, it was actually, it made mainstream news in the UK, actually. It was a BBC interview for the recent burnings of the people and the interview with the military representative. And he was very unapologetic and said, yes, well, this can happen, but it's against people that challenge us, basically. And I guess they are still using the exact same argument as they did to justify all the brutality against the Rohingya community is that these people are the aggressors. We will use this violence. We will kill children. We will hurt, you know, we will rape women because these people are the aggressors. And it's like, they're not even trying to in any way ease the situation or make the country work. They're just attacking the people. And it's just quite shocking. My question, Nathan, is in terms of living in Myanmar and traveling around, there is a definitely a Muslim presence that it's not Rohingya ethnicity, but Islam is definitely a religion in all different communities in Myanmar as well. So in terms of the attacks that you kind of suffered in, in terms of the propaganda and, and the media, I don't understand how it worked because obviously you were just targeted as an ethnicity, but then Islam as a religion isn't just the Rohingya community in Myanmar. Well, you know, all the Muslim are discriminated in Myanmar, you know. Only a handful of people who are well connected with the government and the military, they have the privilege. But all other are basically they are suffering. And the discrimination is not just against the Rohingya, but also against the other Muslim minority. And also, you know, the Christian minority also suffer and the Hindu also suffer. Only the Buddhists have the privilege. So, you know about the violence in Meghila, Lashu, Plebu, in many other places after the 2012 states sponsor violence in Rakhine State. So, the viewpoint, as I mentioned earlier, they all believe that these uh, Muslims are invading the country and they have the many children and they, they are marrying Buddhist women and forcefully combating them. These are the propaganda, the entire country. I mean, the majority of the Buddhists, you know, they believe. I was just trying to make sense of the fact that, you know, Rohingya ethnicity, you were targeted by the propaganda. But oh. I even remember them before that, the animosity between Islam and Buddhism. And there were like what they called curfews because of problems in Yangon, like going back ages before. 
it was an ongoing issue, as you've already said, in terms of targeting it as a religion. But you're completely right, because obviously, like, Kachin State is Christianity. I guess I'm just trying to get my head around the fact that they've committed this genocide against a particular group, but they are non-discriminatory in terms of what they will use to target people. It's mind-blowing. But the next question I did have is, in terms of the actual camps, I've seen things about, like, because it seems like there's, well, you have to create a way of life in a refugee camp. So like you said, there are the, the makeshift schools that you wouldn't actually say are schools, but there's also things like shops and like enterprise. And I've seen things like that, that they just go in and they shut them down. And this, I think, is a Bangladesh that do this. And they're not even able to kind of build up a stable regime there because of the situation in these camps. I just wondered if you could explain a bit more what the reality is like for the refugees in those camps, I guess. I mean, about the situation in Bangladeshi camp in yeah. Kosas Bazar. Yes. Well, you know, first of all, the problem is you are now calling them the refugee, but they are not the refugee there. First of all, the Bangladeshi government and the human organization, they don't recognize them as a refugee. So the Bangladeshi government recognized them as forcibly displaced Myanmar national. And they have the smart card issued by the Bangladeshi government and the UNHCR. So in the card, there is no term refugee has used. So is, is that because if they recognize them as refugees, then they have to they have to provide for them, don't they? Yeah, exactly. You know, the refugee have the refugee right. So since they are not the refugee, they have no right at all for their livelihood, Asian and any other movement. So the camp is unlike the camp in, you know, any other country, very crowded, very dire. And, you know, they are just dependent of the food ration, you know, distributing by the international NGO and the UN organization. The education also, there is no formal education at all. Now, recently, the Bangladeshi authority issued a letter, a warning letter to shut down all the home-based learning center, community-based learning center, only the organization which has the legal permission from the authority will have chance to brand this learning center. So as I visited the camp many times and there are the learning center from the UNICEF, you know, I would be very frank. I visited many, their learning center, and they call themselves, you know, they call it a learning center and school, but they, they are not more than the playground. The children went there to take the bass code and they sing the song. That is only, you know, happening there. So I'm really worried for the education. The community-based learning center are really, really working well. And, you know, they are teaching the Burmese curriculum from the KG to the grade 11. They have so if they can go back to their homeland in Myanmar, you know, they can continue their study there. It was really very good, you know, and Rohingya youth are volunteering. And also there are some teachers, you know, who served for the Burmese Ministry of Education as a teacher. They are also volunteering. So it was really good. And recently you may have about, you know, destroying the Rohingya shop inside the camp. Well, you know, these shops are not the big shop like the Minimart here in Europe. These are the very small shops. You know, they are selling the vegetable, fish, and then maybe meat, and, you know, there's some very cheap clothes just to make some money for their livelihood. You know, those were destroyed by the 
I mean, they're bulldozed, you know, by the Bangladeshi authority. So these refugees are, you know, completely hopeless, especially the youth who passed the matriculation exam in Myanmar. They have no opportunity for the further study. And also back in Myanmar, they didn't have, since 2012, they had no chance to go to the university. The same thing is at the refugee camp. And, you know, even now, the way the Bangladeshi authority issue the letter is, you know, for them, you know, online learning also will have the problem. So this is like, you know, you eat there and stay there without any hope. That is why from there, you know, there's some youth and especially young women are trafficked to Malaysia because, you know, they have no future there. And if they marry someone from the camp, they will not have the future, you know. So instead, you know, they were convinced by the human trafficker. They take the risky journey to Malaysia to get married there with one Rohingya from Malaysia. So this is happening in the camp. So I don't see this repatriation will happen anytime soon under the military regime. Before the regime as well, you know, the government was just pulling the tie. They have no intention to take back this Rohingya. That we need to understand, you know. If they had the good intention on the Rohingya, they would not push this uh, Rohingya to Bangladesh. This is not just happening in 2017. We have to see the ground since 1978, you know, how many times this happened and why the Rohingya are living from their homeland, you know, even you know, during the normal time. So there is the serious persecution. All this persecution amounted to the genocide. So the most important is we need to stop the genocide. That is the most important because the remaining 600,000 in Rakhine state are all still seriously suffering. And there is the provisional measure order from the International Court of Justice. The regime is not complying the order. So the people are still suffering. So in my conclusion about the camp, more than a million people there are completely hopeless. They know, you know, the wall is talking about the justice. They know the wall is talking about the repatriation, but the wall is just talking. You know, the wall is not taking action. That is why I always thanking the Gambia, the small, tiny country from the Africa. They filed the case at the International Court of Justice. Those superpower countries, US, UK, UK always, you know, their ambassador at the UN, you know, always talking about the justice. But when the Gambia filed the case, they didn't join. Only the Canada and the Netherlands, you know, they have joined later. There are more than 150 countries signed this signatory. Where are they? Why they didn't join with the Gambia to make this case stronger? And they talk about the justice, everything, but they don't add. That is another one reason why we are suffering and why the oppressed community across the world are suffering is, you know, there is only talk, no action. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, it was on mainstream news the other day about the massacres in Myanmar and the reporter was like, and hopefully there'll be justice for their family one day. It's like, what is the point in those words unless you're actually doing something to make change? Just in terms of the future, obviously the military, it's not going to happen whilst they're still in control and still killing the, the people in the country. But what would be the ideal situation, do you think, in terms of reintegrating the Rohingya community back into Myanmar, what do you think needs to happen in terms of the future for the country for there to be hope other than international intervention? Well, you know, international intervention, what is happening in Myanmar is, you know, if we compare with the Rohingya situation, it is just small scale. The large scale happened in Myanmar. 
what did they do? They did nothing. You know, we were, you know, keep tweeting and writing, you know, to many government to send the rescue team there to protect the innocent civilian there. Nobody listened to us, you know, the people were trapped inside the village, you know, 10 of thousand, you know, we got the footage. They were crying, you know, they're asking the international community to rescue them. Nobody took the action. So for us now, very important, you know, and like the Rohingya, most of my fellow Burmese, you know, especially young people, they understood, you know, the problem with the, this international community or the United Nations. So they have no armed resistance. Well, you know, the West or the, any other country will not support the, this armed struggle. The violence is really not good. I accept it. But they see no option there. If any superpower country, if they intervene the situation, of course, they don't need to go to the jungle and get the military training, combat training, and fight with this military. These young people, all they want is their freedom, and they want to study. That is only they want, you know. They want to enjoy all the freedom, you know. Since they lost everything, they are now struggling. And the most important for us, you know, for, for Rohingya, under the military regime, we cannot go back, you know. They will never restore the Rohingya citizenship and this recognition of the ethnic identity, right to return to our original village. All the villages are bulldozers. Even, you know, the people go back, they will not recognize their own village. The situation is like that. So. For us, you know, the common enemy is the military. We have to work together to take down the, this military regime at whatever cost. So after we take down this military regime, then we can work together for the repatriation. And, you know, there is also some positive thing from the NUG government. I think in May, they issue a statement. I mean, the policy on the Rohingya, I'm not saying all things are good, but still, you know, they are much better than the than government. You know. They are the same people from there, but they change their policy. So in future, I think since all the view are slowly changing, I think in future they will understand more and we will have, I believe that we will have the equal right as other people in Myanmar. You know. So international community, really I am fed up, you know, to talk about them is like, you know, after the, this massacre in Karani estate, you know, this uh, UN Assistant General Secretary issued a statement asking that there is the same perpetrator to investigate the incident and take the action, which is like, you know, really, I don't know what kind of a statement is it, you know. The statement issued by the United Nations Security Council also, you know, it is like the empty statement. So they said those who perpetrated should be held accountable, but how? Who is going to take them action? That is the most important. You mentioned about the Major General Zomenton, the spokesperson of the, this region. He could talk like that. I listened that in Burmese language and also I read the subtitle in English. So he could talk like that because, you know, there is no action from the international community. They know that international community failed on Rohingya, again failing on Myanmar. So they know how this international community is moving. So if there is the serious action from the international community, of course, you know, the regime will not act like this. They will not commit all this crime they are committing every day. The most important is they enjoy the impunity, you know. That is enabling them to commit all the crime every day, everywhere. They don't care.
Like one of the things I'm thinking, because obviously you're doing this for 20 years. So all of the frustrations people are feeling now in terms of the UN's ridiculous statements that mean nothing, you know, governments time and time again, releasing these statements, we're closely watching, we condemn, we strongly condemn, we strongly, strongly, strongly condemn, and there's no action. And we're incredibly frustrated. And this is our first time paying attention and experiencing this. How do you keep advocating for 20 years and that's what you get all the time. Like, how do you not lose your mind? <laughs> well, you know, this is very difficult. At least, you know, when we advocate for action, at least we got the humanitarian assistance, you know, for the refugee and for the people, you know, internally displaced. And at least we got those some support for the education. Things are like that, you know. When you ask them the action, you know, they turn for the humanitarian assistance, you know. Because the situation is very worse. That is why we asked the action, you know, they understood that. So at least they know that they have the responsibility, but they know they are not involving in any justice process. You know, they, they always say, you know, we have to bring this perpetrator to justice and this and that. Of course, you know, there are not only, you know, the ICJ, ICC, the U.S. can have, uh, can establish their own tribunal. And also this, all the European country, they have their own laws. There are many countries we can file the case, they can help, like in Argentina. They don't encourage, they just stop. So we need to motivate ourselves, you know, because we are helpless. We are always looking for the help. If we have the armed struggle, we can defeat this military. Of course, you know, we will not ask anyone. But without, you know, the international help, we are not going to gain anything. So even, you know, they keep neglecting. We still need to ask them, you know, help us. So at least, you know, for the humanitarian assistance, we, we are getting the help from them. We really appreciate, you know, at least they have. Without their help, the refugee will really suffer. But of course, you know, we don't want to suffer this anymore. We don't want to live in the refugee camp. We want to rebuild our life. We want to live with the human dignity. And we want to develop our community. We want to educate our youth. This is all what we want. You know. We are not going to get you know. what they are assisting us is just you live in the camp and you have no hope. We can give you this. That only they are doing. That is why, you know, we are really upset because, you know, if they don't have the power to take down this military regime in Myanmar and to restore all our rights, you know, we will never ask them. But they have the power, you know, they are not using their power to intervene the situation or, you know, to change our situation. And do you find that it's corruption or is it financial reasons that so many countries are so reluctant to actually put their words into action? Well, you know, I would not accuse them corrupted or any financial reason. That is only their interest. Well, you know, the Uyghur, in regard to the Uyghur situation, the U.S. government immediately, they denounce it as a genocide. And for the Rohingya situation, when Biden has the meeting with the ASEAN counterpart, just, you know, two, three months ago, I think in October, yes, he used the term mistreatment. So our situation is really recognized by many countries and also all the genocide scholar that is, you know, the, the genocide is ongoing. But, you know, they have the geopolitical interest, their own business interest, and, you know, if they have interest to take down this military dictatorship, they would do that. You know, this happened in Iraq. This happened in Libya and in many other countries. They focus, they try to take down the regime. 
So for Myanmar, this is not the first time the, you know, the military regime coup the power. This is the third time since 1962. So from 1988 to 2010, also the people suffer. So what did they do? You know, only they imposed the sanction. They never, you know, try to intervene or they never try to put the serious pressure on Junta to hand over the power to civilian. So this is only, you know, their interest. You know. If they are interested, they would do it. But geopolitically, I'm seeing they are always balancing the power with China. So in this, their struggle, you know, power struggle, we became hopeless, you know, we are helpless. Just thinking in terms of when you talk about the refugee camps or, you know, actually concentration camps, because many people have, just like you said, that's exactly what they are. And you talk about education and the lack of access to education. And two things that strike me with that is obviously we know the Myanmar military fear educated people more than anything in this world. And they will always try to stop people from getting educated but also, if we have people forced out of their country and they're living in these makeshift camps and they have no access to education, they're going to lose their language and they're going to lose their culture. And if you have a, a military regime that is trying to say, oh, they don't belong here, you know, they're not here, they're pretending to be, and they lose their language and they lose their culture, you know, it's going to be a lot harder for them to kind of prove that they are Rohingya as well. Is that a concern? Well, you know, for us, <laughs> the camp, you know, I didn't mention about this. Recently, since the beginning of this year, the Bangladeshi authority installed the barbed wire and the watchtower. The structure is exactly like the memorial site I visited here. So the people cannot leave from the camp at all. And they are confined into the camp. And, you know, there was the massive fire in March this year which displaced about 50,000 refugees and many young children and elderly were killed in the fire just because of the barbed wire, you know, the, the confinement. So they are not integrated into the society. And the one thing is we are at the border area. Since, you know, in the border area, the, the, the Bangladeshi living nearby there, the camp are speaking the similar language like us. Their dialect and our dialect are very similar. But of course, you know, in the Chittagong and the Dhaka, you know, they speak the different language. So I think, you know, we have no concern about the, this language and the culture because, you know, we are confined into the camp. We have no chance to integrate into their society. Well, that's good to know because I wasn't sure if they were trying to teach them. But yeah, they're, they're trying not to give them any education, not even their own. So we have obviously this military and they need to go. I think everyone is in full agreement that there's no place for this military as it stands in Myanmar. But there are always going to be supporters of the military, even on the outside, because they want stability, because of maybe business dealings their own international trade or whatever. So how do people convince those people who are still thinking, oh, well, the military, it's the best option. They're keeping the peace, you know, and they're trying to obviously sell this narrative at the moment that these like people's defense forces, you know, the NUG, these are terrorist organizations. And I mean, this has been done time and time again across countries. You know, these groups that are fighting for their freedom are, are deemed to be terrorists and it puts a fear in people. 
how do people keep fighting back against that and pushing for the military to, to leave and to, to get out of power? Is it as simple as having to physically overthrow them? Is it a matter of recognition needed for NUG by the international communities? What are going to be those key things that need to happen? Well, you know, the corporate industry and the, the people who have invested in Myanmar, they like the military. You know. Those people, they are not working for the interests of the public in Myanmar. You know, They are working for their own interests, you know, their profit. With the military, you know, there are many options. The military is the corrupted region. You know, the military also, they hold the power to make something for them. You see, like, Mayor Lang, he's the multi-billionaire there in Myanmar. He owns part of the Mitel, you know, he owns many other companies. He wears, the, like, you know, the, the watches are 10 of thousands of euro here. You know, how he got those many? So they control the power in the past as well. You know. The family member of the regime, they make the billion money. So the corporate industry, you know, with the military, they can avoid the tires by bribing the regime. So there are many other options. They can make a lot of money. If they are with the civilian government, you know, maybe they will have to pay the full tax. And there would be many other, you know, they have to follow their human rights standard. So, you know, very well about, you know, all those investors, you know, are abusive. You know. There are a lot of reports, you know, the how other industry across the Asia are abusing their worker, you know, by paying very little amount. So with the regime, you know, it is very easy to negotiate. That is why they really like the region. And, you know, those countries favoring the regime also, they have their own investment there. Everyone is looking for the profit. They have their own interest. If they can make the profit under the, the civilian government, let's say, you know, energy get into the power in the future, they would really like the energy. They have no stand, you know, they will support anyone, you know, they think they can make the profit. You know. This is their only interest. So for us now, we see two options. One is to block all the cash flow from the corporate industry to this military regime and the armed struggle. This is, you know, what the people in Myanmar, most of the people in Myanmar, they are seeing these two options because, you know, other options are failing, you know, from the UN international community. So now the most important there is like, you know, the total energy from France and the Chevron from the US and the POSCO from the South Korea. And there are also many other investors, but we are mainly focusing these three companies. The cash flow is like about $1.5 billion in a year. So what the military regime is doing is that they, they buy the weapon with this money and, you know, every day they are killing the people. So basically all the corporate industry are, you know, they're funding that is crime against humanity and they are working with the criminal against the humanity. So. We have been campaigning for the past achievement now to stop their, you know, their payment to the military gender. We are not asking them to help their operation, keep the money with them in a protected account and, you know, transfer back to the civilian government whenever, you know, we have the democratically elected government. So as a campaigner, what I'm seeing is we have to keep campaign until they act. We have to try. And the most important is Solidarity among the grassroots level organization, I mean, the civil society, for example, from the France, US, and the South Korea, 
we need their solidarity as well. They have to also push and we have to also approach their legislator to become this law. And, you know, we are also campaigning the U.S. government to impose the sanction against the MOGE, which is partner with these three corporate industry. So this way, you know, we have to move slowly. But, you know, that the arms struggle is, yes, option, but still, you know, they are struggling by themselves. You know, we cannot also depend on this because if the one state is begging this arms struggle, of course, you know, arms struggle, the people will see this violence, you know, the terrorist organization. But this way, you know, how the people liberated in the past with no country intervented, the Pakistan for separating this for the freedom of the Bangladeshi people. Nobody helped us, you know, find the Burma liberated from the British colonial, India liberated from the British colonial. So with the statement, we didn't liberate it. So I will say always frankly, so we really need this solidarity from the this corporate industry. You know, once Junta doesn't have any cash flow from the corporate industry, they will be weakened and, you know, they will start feel the pressure. They, they are not feeling the pressure by those statements. Yeah, and I think, you know, it always reminds me that, you know, all of these people in these positions of power around the world in most countries are elected by the people. So maybe as people, we need to start looking a little closely about their records on issues like this when we are voting them or when it comes time to vote in future and ask these questions of them. What have you done for human rights in countries? I think we've gotten loads in this conversation, but I always like to ask at the end, was there anything extra or anything that you wanted to add? that we maybe didn't ask or anything we didn't touch on that you, you would have liked to have said? Yeah, you know, as a Rohingya activist, uh, we really appreciate, you know, the people across the world supporting us, you know, especially for the humanitarian assistance and for the justice and the many other things. My appreciation go to whoever, you know, supporting us. And for us, you know, the solution for the Rohingya depend on Myanmar. Now the situation is worsening in Myanmar day by day. And also, regardless of their stand in the past, I saw, you know, a lot of comment over the social media that, you know, the people across the world are, you know, saying that your stand was wrong in the past. So they are really, you know, some people are not convinced to support the struggle of my fellow Burmese people. But with this opportunity, I want to ask all the people across the world to stand with my fellow Burmese as well and try to help us solving our problem. Since we are part of the Rohingya, part of the Myanmar, we are also now part of the problem. We have to solve together. Once the problem in Myanmar is solved, the crisis, all the crises are solved. Once we can take down the military dictatorship, I think this time we will have the better future. I mean, not only for the Burmese people, but also for all the ethnic minority and Rohingya who have been suffering by the war crime, crime against humanity and genocide committed by the military regime ruling the country right now. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Arnar Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at Arnar Podcast. Spelt A-H-N-A-H. Please like, follow and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.